theme for this year, seize life. Say it, seize life. Then in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer, whether it's the Apostle Paul or his son in ministry, Timothy or Apollos, there's some lack of clarity as to who the actual author may be and lack of certainty, but one of those three is generally believed, wrote these words, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we have for uh, some time now been looking at the fact that this high priest has been through everything that you and I will ever walk through. But unlike us, he made it through all of that without ever falling, without ever sinning. Now, ordinarily, what that does, my experience has been in interacting with people that come through something that I have to walk through, but they come through it better than me. If that happens very often, you know what some people do? They develop kind of a smug attitude. You know what I mean? kind of a little superior attitude like, you know, I'm stronger than you. I, I did better than you. Rather, that's a test. Rather, it's sometimes e even in your status in life, people can develop an attitude like that. I live in a better house than you or whatever the case may be and feel a little bit smug and proud about that. I do better on my score, test than you do, whatever. But What's remarkable about this is that Jesus faced everything all of us face and where all of us have slipped, he came through it without ever succumbing to the temptation and without ever falling. Rather than becoming smug, arrogant, distant, lacking in understanding and proud, the exact opposite is his nature. He says, because I went through it and I know that, that you have gone through this, but you messed up, you therefore come boldly. It's, that, that's such a contradiction of the way life is. Most of the time, folks say, if we mess up and they've managed to overcome something like that, well, you just need to try harder. Come on, help me out here. Or they, how about this one? Trying is lying. You, you got to be serious now. And you don't get much help that way. Christ is exactly the opposite. We come to him. Now, the reason that this is important and the reason I'm teaching this this year right now in this part of this series, I am talking about how that, that we can move God, this high priest, Christ, our high priest in the heavens with his extraordinary power and ability far beyond the scope or the reach of anything you and I will ever be able to draw from in terms of resources. He has it all, omniscience, omnipotence, you name it. We can move him to act in our situation. And we've talked about how to do that. Ordinary people can move God because of their passion, and he will show up in the circumstances of their life and do something extraordinary. 
You can't just do that just by acting ordinary. You've got to have enough passion that it that you move God with your passion. And we've talked about how that Abraham moved God by offering an extraordinary sacrifice. And therefore, all of the promises made in Genesis 12 and 13 came to pass in Abraham's life because God looked at the sacrifice Abraham offered and was compelled by that to get involved. We've looked at the extraordinary worship of Paul and Silas. I call it extraordinary because, you know, I've been, you know, hurt before, been had surgery or whatever, and you don't necessarily feel like doing a victory march around church and you just have your, your body laid open like Paul and Silas did, beaten, thrown in jail, not in just, just in jail, but the inner prison, at the, the dungeon underneath the jail. And at midnight, with hands and manacles and feet and stocks, they began to sing praises to God. And that so touched God, God showed up right in the middle of their situation and sent an earthquake and the jail doors popped open and chains fell off their wrists and feet. They had a revival broke out in Philippi. And we've talked about Hannah moving God with an extraordinary prayer. Even Eli the priest didn't realize what was going on. But she moved God. Rispa with intercession and various ones. Of late, we've been talking about Nehemiah. He made his mark because he moved God with extraordinary leadership. And who would have ever dreamed it? Who would have ever thought that in this guy who was, whose official position was just the wine taster, to the king, which literally was a fancy title for meaning that he sipped the wine first before he gave it to the king because if there was any poison in it, then he was, would be the one to die. No special skill needed for that. Amen. No great long resume. You'd have to attend a university to be able to fall dead if you drank strychnine. He was strictly there to make sure an enemy of the king did not poison him but because Nehemiah had such passion to see the city of God and the temple and the walls rebuilt, he touched that king, and the king resourced him and underwrote the budget for the reconstruction of Jerusalem. But what really moved God was Nehemiah's extraordinary leadership. Who would have dreamed that in just an ordinary wine taster would be such leadership ability? During the course of my life, I have, I've attended a lot of leadership seminars. I'll tell you before I began that, that you don't, you're not born knowing everything. Just look at your neighbor and say, that's right. Tell somebody, I've learned a few things since I've been on this planet. <laughs> Amen. Oh, yeah. And I, I want, want you to also know one of the worst ways to learn is to learn through experience. If you survive it, it's a good teacher. But sometimes it can be a hard teacher. Amen. And so I've seen the benefit during the years of attending leadership seminars. I, to my amazement, I discovered the story of Nehemiah is even used in secular leadership seminars. Amen. Because the principles are so extraordinary. And I'm about to launch into a couple more of them in just one moment. But I've attended, last time I checked, it was well over 130 seminars in the course of my life on leadership. Why? Because to be an effective pastor, I realized I didn't want to practice on people. I didn't want to learn the hard way. First of all, the learning curve is too steep and too costly. 
I'd like to be able to learn from someone else's experience rather than learning from my own. Amen. Somebody said, you know, I graduated. Tom Filkins once told me, he said, I, I just earned a degree. And he said, I got one too, Pastor. He said, I, mine is from the School of Hard Knocks. It's a burlap diploma. Boy, did I relate to that. I've, I've got a few of those as well. Anybody else here? Oh, yeah. But after you get a, two, a couple of three of those, and after a while, I, you say, I don't want to get any more of those. I'd rather learn from some other way. If you want to know how to be a leader, there is not a more inspiring place you can turn. Forget Stephen Jobs. Forget all of the others that are out there. And, and look at this book of Nehemiah. Rudy Giuliani is a great leader. The former head, uh, Jack Welts, the former head of uh, GE, great leader, great books. Look at uh, this guy that's Sir Richard Branson, the head of Virgin Airlines, Virgin Records, and this billionaire. Great leadership principle. But if you want to really find something on leadership, this book of Nehemiah is unbelievable. How a man can go from being a no-name wine taster to one of the greatest leaders that has ever lived is extraordinary. And that speaks to me because you're a leader, as I've been stressing in this series, whether you want to be or not, somebody's following you. Amen. Family, kids, somebody's following you. Amen. Or they will be. And one of the things you, that I've tried to point out is you don't wait until you need it to try to look for the solution to a problem. It's a whole lot better to become equipped before the crisis arrives. And in Nehemiah 4, verse 6, I want to turn there. It says, so we built the wall. Hmm, I like that. First leadership principle that I could spend time on is, so, is just to say, look at the pronoun, we built. Amen. Team did that. The dream works if there's team that works, if there's a team that works. Amen. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people that are mine to work, let's pray. Father, I ask today that you would speak a word to us in that way that you have where your word comes alive in our hearts, not just to inspire us for the moment, but for, to change us for the rest of our lives. We ask and give you permission, Lord, to just shove everything out. All of the junk we've learned in the course of living life in a fallen world and help us today to be reprogrammed by that word of God that is forever settled in the heavens, that our thoughts will come into alignment with your thoughts, our ways with yours, and that our actions will reflect the greatness of the God we serve. And everybody said in Jesus' name, extraordinary key of leadership. And so we've already discussed seven of the leadership principles that Nehemiah has um, demonstrated this for, number one, just quickly, that he made himself available. Number two, he saw opportunity where others saw problems. Number three, he had vision and inspired others to follow it. Number four, he built and motivated a team. Number five, he stayed focused and kept the main thing, the main thing. And number six, he refused to allow his problems to discourage him. And number seven, he did not give in to his insecurities. We've already addressed those. But I want to talk about 
a few others, a couple of others today, and I'll soon finish this part on the, the story of Nehemiah. But today, I, I want to stress something else here. It's very important that when you look at something that you're able to diagnose what's going on. Would you agree with me? It's very important that you are able to look at something and know what's going on. You must be able to recognize what is working and what isn't. Last Sunday, I talked to you about how the devil changed his strategy and began to attack Nehemiah and his insecurities. And I want to point out once more that very many times when people encounter a fresh attack of the enemy, they become discouraged. I want to tell you why you should not do that. Anytime the enemy launches a new attack at you that employs a new strategy, you know what it means? It means the old one wasn't working. Somebody in the building needs to say amen. It means that it was not succeeding. So rather than you becoming discouraged, you ought to be glad that the old one, he finally had sense enough to realize this isn't working. I better try something else. Amen. Most of us are not able to look at life and assess it that way. Instead, what we do is say, oh, no, here comes another problem. And we're like the two guys that were a little simple walking down the street. We don't see what's going on. We don't really figure it out. We don't know what's happening. One of them looked down and saw a lady's compact lying on the ground and picked it up and opened it up. And he looked inside and there was a mirror, and he said to his friend, he said, hmm, this person looks familiar. And the second guy said, let me hear, let me see it. I'll tell you who it is, see if I know him. And the first guy hands him the mirror, and the second guy opens it up and looks at him and says, you dummy, that's me. <laughs> it's amazing how many people can look at a problem and not really know what's going on. Well, I'm, I'm talking to you already. Yeah. Yeah. Nehemiah first of all today, let's talk about this. Principle number eight, he took his problems to God. There's not a more important leadership principle than you can, that you can learn in life than this. Take your problems to God. Note I said to God, not to people, to God. Hear this in Nehemiah verses four through five in chapter four. Hear, O our God, you see who that's addressed to? For we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Did you see what Nehemiah did? He reached into the problem, extracted the emotion, and took it out. It says very clearly that the enemy was despising him. I didn't know they were going to sing that song this morning in the choir, but that fits so well because anybody here ever been despised? Kenneth said, kick to the curb. Overlooked, has life ever gone the wrong direction for you? Listen to this. It certainly is for Nehemiah. He starts out and hear what I'm saying. He's come to do something for God. I'm going to do a work for God. Everybody get out of my way. Give me an applause. 
Recognize the purity of my motives. I'm going to do something for God. Guess what? You step out and start doing something for God, even with a pure heart, there's somebody out there going to criticize you. I'm preaching a lot better than you're responding right now. I've lived long enough to find out that somebody's going to misunderstand regardless of how pure your motive or your heart may be. And Nehemiah says, they have despised me, and that hurts. There's nobody that likes people to think ill of them or talk bad about them, but Nehemiah understands that rather than carry his disappointment to other people, he needs to carry it to the one who can help him. Most of us, in the course of our life, go through many circumstances where we do exactly the opposite. We have pity parties. You ever have a pity party? You ever send out all the invitations? How many show up? They don't even RSVP, do they? Uh Uh-uh, nobody wants to attend your pity party. We want to tell somebody because we want someone to commiserate with us and feel bad. Look, that's not going to help you. Nehemiah took it to the Lord God Almighty. And the first thing you need to realize is that you're going to have some problems in this world. Oh, I got to talk to you. I don't mean to preach pessimistic. Uh, A message is pessimistic or gloomy or dark. I'm not giving some kind of prognostication here today that's dire and difficult that waits you in your future. I'm going to just tell you how life is having lived a little bit of it myself. You live in a fallen world that's ruled by a fallen Lord. And yes, Jesus has won the victory and the enemy is defeated, but there's still a mopping up operation going on. There's still some snipers out there and they're shooting at you and still setting some IEDs along the highway of life and there's still some counterattacks that are being launched. Oh, I need a better amen. devil hasn't rolled over and played dead. And as I often say, look around you. This is not heaven. Have you figured that out yet? You seen any streets paved with gold lately? Uh Uh-uh, neither have I. And that was not a gate of pearl you walked through to get into this room here today. No, this is the earth. It's a fallen, contested battleground. It's a battle zone. The enemy has wreaked havoc in this world and until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, there's still some rough places to go through. And somebody's going to talk about you. Somebody's going to disappoint you. There's a storm going to come your way that you didn't deserve and didn't ask for. Hear what I'm saying? Your motives may be right, but it's still going to blow up in your face and there's going to be some drama. I don't care if your name is Mary J. Blige and you've said no more drama in your life until you're tired of saying it. Guess what? Tomorrow some more drama is still going to come. Amen. Job said it like this. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Full of trouble, amen. The Lord Jesus said it like this, these things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. First of all, where does peace come? In Christ. 
He said that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world you're going to have tribulation. You know what the word tribulation means? It means pressure. Stress. Anybody going through any stress lately? Stress on your job. Stress in your marriage. Stress with your kids. Stress with your neighbors. Stress in your ministry. Anybody know anything about stress? Can't sleep at night. Toss and turn. I mean, I'm talking about the kind of stress that Ambien can't even help. It gets worse than that. I'm talking about the kind of stress that when you pick up your Bible and turn back to the Old Testament and read so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, you still can't go to sleep. That's always worked. That'll put you to sleep in seconds, but there are some circumstances. Amen. You'll wake up in the morning with a Bible laying on your chest. (laughs) That's always work. But listen, there are times you're going to go through some stuff where there won't be an easy answer and there won't be a quick solution. And you're going to feel it building up on the inside until you feel like you're about to explode. That's what Jesus said. In the world, you're going to be under pressure. But in me, you will have peace. And I love this, be of good cheer. Wait a minute, Lord. Be of good cheer when I'm under pressure? Yes, because I have overcome the world. How can you be of good cheer when there's all this stress and pressure going on? First thing you do, I've learned this through the years, is reach in and take the emotion out. Set it over on the side and turn around and look at what is left. The enemy wants to get your emotions involved. There's a couple of reasons that I can think of that are behind that. Number one, whenever your emotions are involved and your emotions get inflamed, you can do stuff you never wanted to do. You look back and surprise yourself and say, gee, was that me? Amen. Was that, or is that some monster loosed out and you know, and, uh, hidden in? I mean, goodness. I mean, you can be praising the Lord one minute. You're under pressure, and somebody, you know, does something wrong to you and cuts you off on the freeway or whatever. Next thing you know, you're doing gang symbols to them. And I mean, you're talking in some kind of tongue, but it's not the. You know what I mean? Later on, you go on your shame. You know why I can say that about us? Because I'm talking from my own experience. I've been there. Amen. Oh, feeling so spiritual, you just know you're going to get raptured in the next two or three minutes. And you learn real quick, your feet are nailed to this earth. Amen. Oh, huh. You, you, you experience some things. Your emotions get involved. And when your emotions get involved, you act in a way that you later regret. You make some decisions that you wish you had not made. You know why? Because I can read this iPad real well right here, but I get it too close. And you know what happens? The words blur together. And I lose my objectivity. I lose my clarity and sense of direction. 
And that's what happens with us. When you find yourself in the middle of a situation where you're under attack, reach in, take the emotion out, set it on the side, and look at what is left. You would be amazed it's not as big as you thought it was. Amen. God wants us to rely on him. So the first thing you must know is you live in a fallen world and there's going to be trouble. This is not heaven. The second thing is when you find yourself in the middle of drama, reach in, remove the emotion and deal with what's left. The third thing you do is take what's left to God. Take it to the Lord. In my personal devotions, I love to sing some of the old songs of the church. Not just some of the new ones. I know a lot of folk don't even know some of the old ones. May not relate to some of the old hymns. But I love leaning upon the everlasting arms. Because, you see, we want to lean on everybody else. And sometimes the person around you doesn't have the solution. They don't have the answer. And you can get upset at them and feel like they're not helping you. Well, they're not because they're not capable. One thing I've learned about me is I am not omniscient. I am not omnipotent. I am not omnipresent. There's just some things I don't know. But I can point to someone who does know. I can tell you somebody who does have the power. I can point you to someone that does know the solution. I can tell you about somebody that loves you no matter how bad it's been or how tough it's going. He's there. I look at 1 Samuel chapter number 30 and verse number 6. And I see that Nehemiah and David shared something in common. Nehemiah went and said, hear, O God. See all this stuff? I'm taking it to you, Lord. We're despised but turn their reproach upon their own head. Our problem is, is that we want revenge. You ever tell God, you just look that direction right over there. I'll fix this all by myself right now. You ever tempted to do that? Amen. God, just, if you would be so kind as to look the other way for about 30 seconds, I don't need any more, just 30 seconds. Here, God, put these new earphones on. They, bl they blot out all sound. Don't listen. I got something I want to do here. And you know what happens when we seek vengeance ourselves? We always make a bigger problem out of it than what would have been if we had just left it with God. So Nehemiah took it to the Lord. David one time came to Ziklag with his men. They had been out doing whatever they were doing and returned to find that Ziklag had been overrun. Their wives, their children, their families taken. Can you imagine the horror going through the mind of their family members that were being carried away by this marauding, invading band of the enemy. And just as bad was not only the horror being experienced by the members of the family who had been kidnapped, but also these men who were thinking, my God, what's somebody doing to my, my daughter right now? My wife, my son. And these men became mutinous. And the Bible said in verse number 6 of 1 Samuel 30, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. They were so upset, they wanted to kill their leader. 
you will find in the course of your life in leadership, whether it's in ministry, in your family, whether it's in your business, whether it's in your home, whatever it may be, your school, your social circle, if you are a leader, not everybody is going to love you all the time. Uh, I need somebody to say amen to that. Some folk won't, won't understand. And you will get blamed for some stuff, for some stuff you had nothing to do with. I'm being real with you right now. When people get upset, they can blame you for the economy. They can blame you for the weather. They can blame you because their driveway cracked. You had nothing. They just get mad about everything. You know what I mean? And in the course of your life, you're going to experience that. Your kids will blame you. Oh, dare I say it. Your wife might. Well, I, 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 should I even dare to go there? You hear what I'm saying? You don't want to be in pastor, baby, unless you know what I'm saying right now. You know, past, in pastoring, unless you understand what I'm saying right now. You can do your best to help people, and some folk will get upset at you. Oh, I don't want to work on that job over there. Uh, here people are, they're, they're taking credit for my work, talking bad about me behind my back, blaming me for stuff that I, I had nothing to do with. I'm going to go find me a better place to work at. You, you send me word when you do, please. I'd like to send an application and, and find out if they need a pastor on that job. Because hear what I'm saying. You can't live in this world without somebody getting upset at you and blaming you for stuff you had nothing to do with. They blamed David. And you know what David did? David didn't get all upset and fight fire with fire. You know what David did? This is what the scripture said. It said he strengthened himself in the Lord. That's what you do. Take your problem to God. Some problems are beyond the scope of men. Only God can fix it. There's an old song we used to sing in the church whose words go like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Did you hear that? Everything. We want to carry some things to our friends, some to our neighbor, some to the pastor, some to the church. And understand, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying there's a better place to carry your problems to. And that's the one that can change it after it's all said and done. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what I found out in the course of living life? That if you want to fight your own battles, God will back away and let you do it. God will just get out of your way and say, let's see what you got. Go ahead, show me your stuff here. Amen. But if you don't want to be put in that position, there is a God who will fight on your behalf. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. That's what God told Jehoshaphat. When you get in the middle of a situation you can't fix, just turn to the high priest and say, God, I want you to fix it for me. Amen. And he will take care of it. Oh, somebody say hallelujah. Don't be shaken. Don't be upset. Y'all remember this song? I shall not be moved. Remember how it goes? Though all hell assail me, I shall not be moved. He will never fail me. 
I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Hold on to the hand that's never lost a battle. Hold on to the one that's going to see you through everything. You say, Pastor, how do I get to the place that I don't allow the emotion to overcome me? And I'm sorry to have to tell you this. But to answer that question, I need to be truthful. You know how you get to the point that you don't give in to the terrifying fear of the moment, the emotion? You got to go through some other stuff first. Okay, Okay, y'all dialed me out now. You see how quiet a holy hush descended on the house. I enjoyed that message until that pastor got off negative. You know, (laughs) you got to walk through some things. Saul is cowering in his tent, terrified of a giant in the valley. I want to ask you, what's your tent going to do if that giant decides to come pay you a visit? It's not going to be much to stand between him and you. But David is out there saying, you come against me in the name uh, uh, and, and curse me in the name of your gods. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. What made David unafraid and what made Saul afraid? The worst thing that God could do would be to answer our prayers. When we pray, God, let life be easy. God, Take the thorns out of the roses, the rocks out of my path. Let me just go through life without a care in this world. That is the worst thing that God could ever do to you. Because that's why Saul was hiding in his tent. He had never faced anything before. The reason David was out there in the valley saying, let me at this uncircumcised Philistine is because he had already faced a bear and a lion. David was not afraid when he faced the giant, but I'm not going to tell you that he was unafraid when he faced the bear. Come on now, get real with me. When you begin to face things in the course of life that you can't overcome, of course there's something that rises up on the inside of you some sense of panic, some sense of foreboding, some sense of dread. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And sometimes you just got to swallow two or three times and square your shoulders back and keep marching on. One of the things that I keep hearing out of both Afghanistan and, and also Iraq from our military who have returned is this. Courage is not the absence of fear. Come on, help me out. People think that courage is you don't feel any fear. Uh Uh-uh. Courage is when you keep doing the right thing no matter what the danger or the odds are. You know why? Because you start surviving some things that, that you would have run from otherwise. Oh, Lord, have mercy. 
I'm sure David would like to have run when the bear showed up, but he didn't, and because he didn't, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The same thing with a lion, and once he had conquered some things that he never should have survived a confrontation with, you know what happened to him? All of a sudden, he reached the point he wasn't afraid of giants anymore. What am I trying to tell you? It's the stuff you go through and make it through that makes you strong. Oh yeah, Nietzsche was right. I think it was Nietzsche. What doesn't kill you does make you stronger. When you make it through it and you shouldn't have, that's whenever you look back and say and ask yourself, how did I get through all of this? And it dawns on you that it wasn't by might nor by power, but it was by God's spirit that you walked through the middle of it all. And then you can sing, never would have made it if it had not been for God who was on my side. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You take your problems to God. The ninth leadership principle is don't give in to fear. Nehemiah 4, 7 through 9. Now it happened when Sanballat, listen to this, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Asdodites. Is that enough ites for you? heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. Hmm. Just look at your neighbor and say, not everybody's going to appreciate what you're doing. Would you do that? And notice what it says. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. How do you know that the devil's in the middle of something? When you see confusion. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Oh, oh, amen. You know what Nehemiah said? Nevertheless, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. What does that word nevertheless mean? It means in spite of what we were seeing and developed, we went ahead and prayed anyway. Sometimes you've got to pray anyhow. Sometimes you've got to worship anyhow. Sometimes you've got to go to church. Oh, you're not hearing what I'm talking about. Come on, help me. Sometimes you've got to give your tithe. Oh, listen to me. The devil will terrify you and paralyze you into immobility. Fear is a frightening force. Oh, if you've ever dealt with fear. Anybody in this building ever dealt with real fear? There are people that have panic attacks, and they can't do anything about it. You know what panic attacks do? They, panic attacks release a surge of adrenaline into your body that produces this fight-or-flight syndrome. Your pulse begins to beat faster. Your heart pounds in your chest. Your blood rushes through your temples. Your face becomes hot. Your vision focuses and you develop tunnel vision and, and everything blurs on the edges and you can't see anything but what's right in front of you. Panic attacks, they tell me, are terrifying. They're immobilizing. I, I don't know about that, but I, I can tell you this. My favorite cartoon artist is Bill Waterman. Does anybody know Bill Waterman? 
you don't know him, you might remember some of his work, Calvin and Hobbes. Does anybody know Calvin and Hobbes? I love Calvin and Hobbes. In my opinion, Bill Waterman is one of the greatest psychologists that has ever lived. He understands how the mind works. He's got one of his books that he wrote. And by the way, if you don't know who Calvin and Hobbes are, Calvin is this precocious little six-year-old boy that has a vivid imagination, and Hobbes is his stuffed tiger. And when nobody else is around, Hobbes comes to life in Calvin's imagination. And Calvin is this impish little guy always getting into trouble. Uh, and, and Hobbes is there making fun of him and laughing at him. And it, one of the books has on its cover Calvin and Hobbes in bed. And there's a big pool of saliva that's up under the bed and some red eyes under the bed. And the title of, of the book is Something Under My Bed is Drooling. I've lived in that bed before. I've slept in it when I was a kid. Another one has Hobbes and Calvin in bed, and there's a tree outside Calvin's window that's casting a, a shadow through the window because it must be a full moon, right? And that tree's limbs look like a monster. Y'all see that one? That tree grew right outside my window when I was six years old. I'm serious. Terrifying. Every one of us go through things like that. How do you deal with it? You heard about the guy that couldn't sleep at night? It's not just kids. Oh, no, it's grown men and women. Oh, come on, I'm going to get real with you. I'm going I'm to tell off on you right now. How many of you look under your bed before you go to sleep at night? <laughs> look in the closet. Your wife says, what you doing? Oh, no, just putting up some shoes, that's all. Just hanging up the shirt. <laughs> a guy went to a psychologist, psychiatrist, and he was shaking. He had lost weight, dark circles under his eyes. He was pale. His hands were trembling. He walked in and said, doctor, you have to help me. I'm dying. The doctor said, what's the matter? He said, I'm living in fear. I can't sleep at night. I have terrible insomnia. I go to bed at night and all night long I, I'm thinking there's something under the bed waiting for me to close my eyes and go to sleep. And when I go to sleep, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out from underneath the bed and it's going to do drastic harm to me. And the psychiatrist listened and said, well, I, I can help you. He said, it's going to take three years. You're going to have to make an appointment to see me every week for the next three years. But I will walk with you through it. And we will get through this. And the man said, how much is it going to cost? And the doctor said, $150 a session every week for the next three years. Man's eyes got big. He walked out. He said, I'll call. If, you know, I'll take your card. I got your card. And three months later, the psychiatrist is walking down the aisle of the grocery store. And he sees this man coming down the aisle smiling at him. And the man is all jovial and friendly and robust and good health. And, and the psychiatrist, it dawns on him, that was the man that came to me three months ago 
whose hands were trembling, that it was so skinny, bags under, circles under his eyes. And he said, aren't you the man that came to see me about this irrational fear that something was waiting under his bed every night to harm him when he went to sleep? And the man said, yes, I am. And he said, I thought you were going to call. I'd advised you to, to get in touch with me. I was going to set up a meeting once a week for the next three years, and I was going to help you get through this, but you look like you're doing good. How are you? And the man said, I'm fine. He held out his hand. It was steady. He was healthy, hearty, and the doctor said, how did you get over the problem? He said, well, to be honest, he said, when you said $150 a week for the next three years, he said, that was, that was pretty frightening too. But he said, I told my friend about it who's a carpenter, and he cut the legs off my bed for $20, and now I never worry about it anymore. <laughs> Only thing that can live under my bed is a pancake, and I'm not fearing, no, I'm not afraid of any pancake, amen. No monsters under my bed, I can tell you that, hallelujah. I don't even have to look under my bed anymore. Look, the enemy will cause you to live in fear. Take it to God and secondly, reject the fear. Don't live in fear.